for those of you who are new to our church or just trying to figure things out, let me just really super extra encourage you to go to the membership class after our service today. It doesn't, doesn't mean you have to join our church, but you can kind of just explore and see what's going on, whether you're going to be here for two years, even one year, uh, six months. We kind of want you to plug in to the church and to be part of it. It doesn't matter if you're a college student or older or anything in between. We encourage you to consider joining the church. Well, we are typically a church who preaches through books of the Bible. If you're new here, that's what we do. Uh, we have finished up Second Peter for the summer, and a few weeks we'll go to the book of Proverbs. Like, who preaches through Proverbs? Well, we do. And so we're going to go through the book of Proverbs in a few weeks. But right now, we are pausing and rooting ourselves deep in the ethos of our church. When we, when we talk about ethos, we're just talking about who we are as a church and who we want to be as followers of Jesus Christ in the Chicago area. And this is expressed in five ethos statements that we have looked at before over the years. And this time around, we have pictures. For those of you who function better with pictures, you come to the right place. So let me give you a little overview of our ethos statements with our images. We can go ahead and put those up. This is humble orthodoxy. The next one, abiding worship. Missional community. Invested sojourners. And pervasive gospel. We'll explain the images each week. But last week we looked at humble orthodoxy with the anchor rooting us deep in God's truth. And this week we're going to look at abiding worship. And I'm going to go ahead and bring up uh, Pastor John Bechtel, who was the man behind these images in so many ways. And just the way he explains them, I, just, I feel like they, they really hit. So, John, do your thing. Thanks. Guys, you're looking at some, some images and you're thinking, oh, pretty pictures. This was about six months of work with professional artists. This actually was a big part of um, Andy Hudson's internship last year, so I want to give him a shout-out as well. Um, we're talking about abiding worship. What do we mean when we're talking about abiding worship? What do we want to see happen? Well, really, we're, Pastor Jason is going to unpack it, but we just want people to have a vital, wholehearted, whole-life commitment and obedience to Jesus Christ. And so the image that we've chosen to represent this is, is a stylized vine. I hope you guys can see that. It's a vine with fruit, obviously with some reference to John 15, about abiding in Christ. And really what we're trying to convey here, if you look at the picture, we just want, we want people to understand when they see this image the idea that really no fruitful life of worship can come apart from abiding. Uh, we heard that in John 15. We can accomplish a life of commitment and obedience apart from a vital connection to Jesus Christ. So we want to make sure that we are connected to the vine. But the other thing we want to see in this picture is the idea of the fruit that are connected to the vine. Fruit is useful when it's picked. When fruit is picked, it's a total commitment. That piece of fruit is all in. Its life is now not its own, and it is being used, which, which goes to this idea of, Romans 12 that Pastor Jason is going to unpack that are, we're offering our, our, our lives, our bodies as, as living sacrifices, as, as acts of worship. And so there's a whole um, life commitment um, as we're vitally connected to Jesus Christ. So that is what we're trying to, to uh, convey in this image. And hopefully as you see it, as Pastor Jason is talking, it'll become more real in all of our lives. Thanks. Thanks, John. I want to start this morning out by asking you a question. I'm going to go ahead and put it up on the screen. How many of you would like to know and do 
the will of God all day long. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus, I'm sure you can just raise your hand. But how many of you would like to actually know what God's will is for your life all day and do it? And I'm talking about in every situation, every circumstance, from the time you get up to the time you go to bed, you know God's will and you're going to do it. No matter what the circumstance arises, no matter what happens, you're going to know and you're going to do his will for sure. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you love that? Wouldn't you love that? Well, here's the little, I guess, problem. Most of your day is spent reacting. Most of your day is just spent reacting, whether it's good or bad. Your, your alarm doesn't go off. You react. Train's delayed or someone cuts you off in traffic. You react. You go to school or you go to work and people don't like your ideas. You react. Your child throws a fit or is disobedient. You react. A situation comes up to lust. You react. To overindulge, you react. To spin, 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 you react. Your uh, significant other is a little grumpy or moody. Not that that ever happens. You react. Or you have an opportunity to serve and to love and to give, and you react. Basically, most of your day is just spent reacting. When you say? Pastor John Piper has put it like this. I thought it was kind of interesting. I want to share it with you. He says, I venture to say that a good 95% of your behavior you do not premeditate. That is, most of your thoughts, attitudes, and actions are spontaneous. What I'm trying to get you to do is feel this tension, okay? Here's the tension. I'm going to just kind of give it to you again if you're not catching this. You want to know and do the will of God all day long in every circumstance, and yet most of your life is spontaneous reactions, Yeah, you feel that tension. You feel that tension. Because you can wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to do the will of God every day, all day today, in every circumstance, situation. And then you take off on your day, and most of your day, you're reacting to stuff happening to you, either good or bad. And some of those reactions are God-honoring, and some of them are downright evil. So here's the question, once again. How can you live a life where you can discern the will of God in every situation and do it in a day that's filled with spontaneous reactions? And here's the answer. Abiding worship. Abiding worship is not just a Sunday morning event. We're talking about an all-out, all-life worship where our spontaneous reactions are God-honoring. They're God-centered and not self-centered. Wouldn't you like to live that way, where your spontaneous reactions are honoring and praising to God? How do we get there? Abiding worship. Let's look at our text this morning. We're at the book of Romans, of all places. Romans chapter 12 is where we're at this morning. Let's look at this all-of-life worship. I'm going to go ahead and read the text to you in Romans 12, 1 through 2. There's no need to stand. It's really, really short this morning. 
But I'm going to start with Romans 12, verse 1. Let's look at it. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Here we have the Apostle Paul writing this book to a church in Rome, and the reason why he is writing is to root this church deep in the gospel. And so we want Paul to have his full effect upon us through the power of the Holy Spirit this morning. And so what we're going to do, we're going to slow down, and we're going to take these two verses phrase by phrase. And I would love it that you would actually understand the word this morning, that you would go home and say, I actually know this, and you can look at it phrase by phrase and understand clause by clause. So let's go ahead and jump in. Romans 12, verse 1. Look again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Let's stop there. So Paul is making an appeal to his brothers and sisters in the Lord to live a certain kind of life. And just kind of get, bring up the speed. If you read Romans 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16, you will see in those chapters that Paul is giving a variety of commands to the brothers and sisters to live a holy life. The commands are things like love one another, serve one another, be generous, give to those in need, hate what is evil, Bless those who persecute you, and on and on and on and on. Paul's trying to motivate the church to live a holy life. And the way he goes about in motivating them is that he is going to appeal to them. And the way we see this appeal is made is the word therefore. Do you see it there? Verse 1, he says, therefore. And now that therefore refers to the first 11 chapters. In the first 11 chapters, Paul is kind of grounding his motivation for them to live a holy life. So his appeal to holiness is based on what has come before in the first 11 chapters. So let's just stop here and pretend. Let's pretend that you do not know what is in those first 11 chapters. And you're like, I don't need to pretend. I don't know. But let's just pretend if you do know that you don't know what's going on in those first 11 chapters. How would you motivate someone to live a holy life, to do the will of God. If you were going to disciple somebody, let's say you were going to disciple a teenager or you were going to disciple a college student or, hey, let's make it it kind of fun. Let's say you're going to disciple your own child. Just pretend you had a kid and maybe the kid's a teenager. How are you going to motivate them to live a holy life? So let's just say you're talking to to your kid about the will of God and you say stuff like, hey, don't get drunk. Because when you get drunk, you you don't know what you're doing. You're kind of out of control, and you'll have all these regrets. So don't get drunk. And by the way, don't, don't wear inappropriate clothes. You start wearing inappropriate clothes, then you're going to attract the wrong guy. So wear the right clothes. And, and by the way, don't, don't, you've got to stay pure. Because if you don't stay pure, you may get pregnant, or you may get diseases, or you may have, may have major heartbreak. And if you get mad... Don't control your temper, because you could hurt somebody if you don't control your temper. And by the way, serve orphans, 
and serve the elderly because you'll feel good about yourself and it'll look good on your resume. And so there's a lot of ways that we can motivate our teenagers to do the will of God. And, and, but I'm kind of wondering, that kind of appeal totally leaves God out of the picture. It's not talking about what pleases him, what honors him, what dishonors him. You're not talking about sin. It's almost like a, a godless appeal to do what is right. And I, I'm just wondering, since most of you are kind of at this phase right here, most of you have not hit the phase where your kids are teenagers. And I know some of you have, and I know some of you are way past that. But, but get this. How are you going to appeal to your kids to do what's right? It's, is it going to be this godless appeal where you're not talking about God at all? You're not talking about what honors him, what pleases him. You're just talking about the practicalities of, hey, I don't want you to get a disease. What is that? Sometimes we don't even sound like Christian parents. We want to make our appeal that includes God and our discipleship and raising our kids. And the Apostle Paul makes his appeal to the church to live a holy life based upon what? Look at the verse again. Verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, the mercies of God. Chapters 1 through 11, if you ever read them in Romans, contains the mercies of God. Do you get this? Because God, he is holy, he is righteous, he is just, we are sinners, but in his grace, he doesn't wipe us out. He sends his son, Jesus Christ, to reconcile us to him through faith. And he just pours out these mercies upon us. We are saved by faith. We are declared righteous by faith. We are forgiven. We are not condemned. We are filled with the Spirit. And now we are headed to glory with him forever. He's appealing based upon the mercies. So as you disciple someone, as you raise your kids, uh, make the appeal to your children on the mercies of God, on the gospel of Jesus Christ, on how God interacts with their life. Don't make it this godless appeal to live a holy life, but root it deep in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in the mercies of God. And that's what Paul's doing. He's rooting it deep in the mercies. So now he's going to have this call to holiness. Look at the next clause. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, here's the next clause, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's kind of odd. Just think about the Old Testament. The Old Testament would have sacrifices of animals that would be placed on the altar. And these animals were not alive, but they were dead. And you may wonder, why don't we do that anymore? That sounds kind of gross and bloody, so we don't do it. No, it's not because of that. We don't do it anymore because Jesus is the final once-for-all sacrifice. But this church is very familiar with this dead animal sacrifice on the altar. And Paul tells them, hey, why don't you get on up there yourself? Just take your whole entire life, take your body, stick it up on the altar. Don't, don't kill yourself, but still be alive, and you be the sacrifice where you give all of your life to God. And notice he says the word, did you catch it? He says, to present your bodies. It's like, why did you say bodies? Like, why do you, what's so big about my body? Why, why, do you, why does it matter if my body's up there or not? 
Because I think what he's saying, he means all of you, but he doesn't want you to just think that you're gonna, your life is just so super spiritual that it doesn't involve your body. Sometimes we, we want to get all super spiritual that, that we, we talk about our hearts. I talk about the heart all the time, but we've got to see it's connected with our body. Lincoln Duncan put it like this. Let me put it up there for you. It's almost like Paul is saying, don't give Jesus your heart. He wants more than that. Now, let me, let me elaborate on this. Do you ever talk to someone who will tell you, Jesus has my heart? And you look at their lives, and you're like, oh, my goodness. What does that even mean? Have you ever heard that people use the terminology, I've accepted Jesus into my heart? And then you look at their lives, you're like, is that just some superstitious phrase you use? You accepted Jesus into your heart, or he has your heart, when you see their priorities are so whacked out. I would be surprised if the majority of Americans would say they've accepted Jesus into their heart, or they've given Jesus their heart. What does that mean? Is that just, once again, some superstitious phrase you use that's your ticket to heaven? God is calling for all-out commitment to him where we take our entire lives and we just hand our entire bodies, all of us, over to him and say, here is an absolute, total commitment. I don't know how in the world in America we just come to this quick, accept Jesus into your heart phrasing, and then bam, you are in. And now go do whatever you want. What is that? What is that? He wants an entire life sacrifice based upon the mercies of the gospel of Jesus, where we hand our entire life over to him. It's a living sacrifice, but if you also notice in the next phrase, it's a sacrifice that is holy and acceptable to God. It's acceptable to him because it's done in full devotion, and it is holy because our lives are now set apart for God. If you put a, a dead animal on the sacrifice, once the animal hit that altar in, in the Old Testament, the, the animal was set apart as holy and devoted to God. And the idea is here is that we set our lives on the altar to sacrifice to God, to use as he wants to use, and we are holy and set apart to God. And there's a verse in Romans that kind of just clarifies this even more. I'm going to put it up for you. Romans 6.13 fleshes this out. Look, look at Romans 6.13. It says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Do you get that? The phrasing is take your body and hand over every member, heart involved as well. So that means that we're not giving our eyes to gaze upon sin. We're not using our hands to hurt other people. We're not using our words to wound. We're not giving our minds to selfish pursuits. We're not using our feet to walk in paths of wickedness. Rather, we want it to take our members of our bodies, our eyes, put them on him. Our hands are for love. Our minds are set for his purposes. Our mouths are for building others up. And our feet are to walk in the path of righteousness. Do you get it? It is an all-out commitment to the Lord based upon the gospel of Jesus Christ where we take our lives and we say, here, all of us, take all of us. May it be a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice to you. And the deal is, it's not one shot. It's not like we do this one time and we're done. 
Many of you have gone to Christian camps, you have gone to Christian conferences, and you've had what you might describe as supernatural experiences at these events where you really just commit your life to the Lord and he is just working your life and you're going all out for him. And I love those mountaintop experiences. I bet you do too. I love them. But our commitment to the Lord is not a one-shot deal. And you know why it's not a one-shot deal? I'm going to tell you why. Because that a mountaintop experience where you stuck yourself on that altar and you said, Lord, I'm all of yours. The problem is, is that the sacrifice on that altar is living. And you know what living sacrifices tend to do? You know, crawl off the altar. Yeah? So that's not a one-shot deal. This means that you cannot coast on yesterday's devotion. You cannot say, well, when I was in college, man, I, I love the Lord. I read his word and I prayed and oh, we were out there. We were obedient. And you, you can't coast. And I would say we can't even coast on yesterday's devotion. I was in the word. I was praying. I was obeying. No, no, no. It's a daily commitment where we take our whole lives and say, Lord, I'm throwing myself upon your mercies today. I need your word today. I need to interact with you in prayer today. I need your power today to obey. This is why it's called abiding worship. It's not a one-shot deal worship. It's an abiding worship. We keep going to him on a daily basis, and we don't coast off of yesterday's devotion. It's got to be abiding worship. And I think this abiding worship makes more of these spontaneous reactions that you will have throughout the day makes them more God-centered. And that's what we want. We want our spontaneous reactions to be God-centered. And that's going to come a daily handing over to God of your whole entire life. So if you do not like your reactions that you have throughout the day, stop and ask yourself, am I giving my life over to the Lord on a daily basis in a relationship with him? Ask yourself that. Well, verse 2 gives a bit more detail on this living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice. Look at verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. So part of this living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice says, do not be conformed to this world. This world, this age you live in, I know it looks beautiful, a lot of great things we can enjoy, but on a whole, this age is trying to conform you into its image of worldliness, anti-God, live it out in sin. It's what the world is trying to do is conform you into its mold. But the reality is, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been set free from the bondage of sin. You are now free to serve the Lord. You've been set free from this hold that this world has on you. And so now you're not to go back to the evil age of this, this world and get caught up in the world again. And as Paul puts it, do not be conformed to this world. Now, how many of you woke up here this morning and thought to yourself, today I am going to conform to the world? Has anybody as a believer ever woke up in the morning and said, today's a good day to conform to the world. I just can't wait to conform to the world. Nobody talks like that who's a believer. But this conformity to the world, get this, it will passively happen. It will just happen to you. 
if you're not actively trying not to conform to the world, you will conform to the world. You just will. You're not going to wake up and say that. It will be a passive event where you will passively conform to the world unless you're on your guard. Let me put it like this. I moved here from California. And in California, for many years, they've had a certain crosswalk law that's been in in place for, I guess, a long time, even before I've got there. And what that means is that you can walk on a crosswalk there and all the cars will stop. They will not enter any part of the crosswalk. The cars there, if you're from there, know that. I mean, there's some crazy Midwestern that sometimes there doesn't pay any attention. But on the whole, they notice they have the crosswalk. So on crazy Wilshire Boulevard, going through Santa Monica, so busy, they have these crosswalks going across the street, no lights or anything, and you can just be walking along and say, hmm, I want to cross this busy street. And as soon as you step your foot out into the crosswalk, all the cars break. It's, it's amazing. I like to, you know, we have, we've had friends with us walking along. I say, watch this. We walk along and boom, just step right out and they all stop. It's the law. They get that. They know that. It's an amazing thing if you're not from there when you see it. Like, wow, they really stop. Yeah, I know. But Illinois. <laughs> enacted a very similar law in 2011. You're like, really? <laughs> yeah, really? Let's just stop. Don't go on the crosswalk. And so they enacted this law, and as they enacted this law, I, 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 don't, I don't know what the people, uh, the hierarchy were thinking, but they're, they're, they're probably looking, they're going, wow, the motorists are not getting it. And you, you just can't jump out there. You've got to be careful. And so what I've seen happen in Evanston is Evanston must have recognized that people are not getting it. And so they put up this sign. Can I show you the sign they put up? Have you seen this? It's all throughout Evanston. Now, let's keep that. That sign... It's fine, but it annoys me what people do with it. First, people think it's a stop sign. So let me teach you, that is not a stop sign. All right? Amen? All right. You just go. You just go. All right? But if there is a pedestrian in the crosswalk, okay, I know it's hard, okay? You stop. All right? So you got that. You see, you stop. And so that's the rule. But I think what was happening is that people weren't even getting this. A pedestrian will walk, and then they would just keep zooming by. And so I saw something. Don't put it up yet. I saw something this last week, and I thought, there's no way that's what that is. But it seems like they don't even trust people in the cars anymore. They want the pedestrians to take over and protect themselves. So let me show you this. Come on, let me show you this. This is great. Have you, has anybody seen this? <laughs> Have you guys seen this? This is, this is on, I think, on Sheridan Road. I, and so it's, I, I do a walk every day, and so I saw that, and I thought, wow. So they want the pedestrian to protect themselves. And so I was so embarrassed, but I had to do it like a goofball. So I picked the flag up, and I carry the flag across the crosswalk. I don't, I don't want to get hits. And I saw some other people do it on the other side. They were like waving the flags. <laughs> Only in Evanston. That's awesome. And so here's the deal. Trying to make a point here. Come back with me. Yeah, get rid of that. Get rid of that. <laughs> we cannot be passive in crossing the crosswalks, right? We've got to be active or we're going to get hit. And I would say the same thing here. If you're passive and not paying attention to the world and not actively guarding yourself, you will get clocked. You will get taken out. And you know what? There might be some things that you do. They'd be like waving the flags. You may be like, 
oh, it's so embarrassing. It's something embarrassing you got to do to stay holy, right? You say, you know what? I just can't go to that place because I know I may be tempted to sin, so I'm not going to go there. It may be embarrassing telling people these things. But we've got to be actively on guard so we do not conform to the world. Do not conform to the world. We can't be passive, but active. But get this. There's something that we can also actively do. Look at the next clause. Look at the next clause. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That word transformed is the same word that was used to speak of Christ on the mountain when he was transfigured. Remember when he was transfigured? His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. It's, it's where we get our word metamorphosis, which is talking about a radical change where the person is no longer conforming to the patterns of this world, but they're be- being changed. They're being, this metamorphosis is happening where they're becoming more and more like Christ. And it's a work of God. Let me put up this verse, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Let's look at this one. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed to the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You catch that. So this, this transformation into Christ-likeness comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So for you to become more and more like Jesus Christ, it is a supernatural work of God. Who is going to make you more like Jesus? God is. But you participate. You have to do something. And what does Romans say you have to do? Look, look at it again. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That means in some sense, your mind, in some sense, has to be retrained and transformed and made new so you're no longer thinking in the patterns of this world but in line with, the, with, the, with his word. And, of course, we know we get in his word, we meditate it, we chew on it, we memorize it. And in his word, when it gets in us, God changes us and changes our thinking. And we need our thinking changed on everything we do, from the way we deal with money, for those of you who are trying to date right now. Like, how do you even do that? How do you even get to a relationship where you're heading towards marriage? Are you going to be thinking in the world's ways? Or are you going to be thinking in line with the word? What about your job? What about whether you should move or not? What are you thinking in your relationships and ethics? Are we thinking like the world? Are we thinking and being renewed by God's word, by his spirit, and and being conformed to him rather than the world? And get this. As you submit yourself to him, as he's starting to renew your mind, then you start to have an amazing ability. It's like a supernatural, superhero ability where God works into your life where you start to discern his will and you do it even as a reaction. Look at the very end of verse 2. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So as we're consecrated to the Lord, our minds are renewed, and we start to grow in this ability to know and do his will. It's like we can see it and discern it more clearly. And we have his will totally revealed in the Bible. But what starts to happen as his word gets into us and it changes us, we start to operate on like another level where we have his wisdom just pouring out of us. So when these reactions start to happen in our hearts, they will be spontaneous, God-exalting reactions. And I don't know about you, but that's what I want. I want to start doing the will of God, his good, pleasing, and perfect will, even 
as a reaction, even as a spontaneous reaction, because he's changing me inside. And so I can't anticipate the hundred things I need to react to today, but I know that when they come out, the right thing's going to come out because I'm abiding in him. Now, sometimes the wrong thing is going to come out. I need to be quick to repent, quick to receive forgiveness, but I want to be abiding so deep in him that these reactions start to be God-honoring, whether they're at 3 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, at night, no matter when they are, I want to have these spontaneous, God-glorifying, I'm worshiping you reactions. So where do we start? Like, if you're going to leave here today, and I say, okay, this is where you start. You could have two different approaches. One approach is you could take the route of technique. I could send you out of here with a technique, and you could go try it. It'd work for about 20 minutes, and then you'd go back to your old pattern. So let's, let's not go the route of technique. But let me just suggest one technique that, I, that we could talk about. And it's worked for some people, very, very few, but some. It's, it's something called practicing the presence of God. You've heard of this before, right? There's a lot of godly books out there by godly people who their idea is let's somehow practice the presence of God in every single second of the day where we're inviting him in, talking to him, Every single second of the day. And I'm not saying you shouldn't go and do that, but but I'm also saying that's probably going to just be a technique for you that will last about 20 minutes. Some people, for whatever reason, in their godly life are awesome with that. I've I've tried to do that. I'd love to do that, but it just can turn into a technique if we're not careful. So I'm not going to leave you with that. But that's not a terrible thing. I'm not going to leave you there. Here's what I'm going to leave you with. I think this is a better option. This is where you start. I think a better approach would be to keep infiltrating your heart and your mind with the mercies of God. How about that? Paul appeals to the Romans to live a holy life based upon the mercies. And I say, hey, brother, hey, sister, I want you to live and do God's will every second of your day. So I'm going to appeal to you on the mercies. And you may say back to me, well, where, where can I find the mercies? Well, they're all over the Bible. And you think, well, that's too big a place to start. I agree. And I say, well, why don't you go read Romans 1 through 11? And you would say, I'm not going to do that. Okay, I agree. You're probably not going to do that. So let's, those are mercies all throughout there. So I'm going to try to make it real, real simple for you. And say, how about we just consider the mercies in Romans chapter 8? Very familiar chapter, right? What does that, what does that chapter say? If you're in Christ Jesus, you're not condemned. If you're in Christ Jesus, you're forgiven and the Spirit lives in you. In fact, if you're in Christ Jesus, you're now a son and a daughter, and you can use such words with God as Abba, Father. If you're in Christ Jesus, you may be suffering now, but there is glory that awaits for you. He's not against you. He's for you. In fact, he's working all things for your good and for your glory. And what I would like to say about these mercies is to keep bombarding your mind and your heart on a daily basis with the mercies of God. Where do you start? Romans 8 is a good place. Just take Romans 8 and just keep hitting yourself with that over and over again so where you can be so convinced that God loves you in Christ, you are forgiven in Christ, his grace is poured out in you in Christ, and what will start to happen is you start to change on the inside and you go, yes, 
and you worship him and you praise him and you say, God, take all of me. And I actually mean it this time. Take all of me. Be motivated by the mercies. Let's pray. Lord, we cannot believe that you've forgiven us. We cannot believe that you've changed our hearts. We cannot believe you're renewing our minds. We cannot believe we can actually see your words and know them and hold them and, and cherish them. We cannot believe all the mercies we received in Jesus. And we want to worship you. And we, we know this week we failed. We know even this morning many of us have just totally blown it. And we ask for forgiveness and grace to start again, many times over, of worshiping you and praising you with this all of life, all-encompassing worship. And for those of us in here, Lord, we have, some of us have been very passive and we have conformed to the world. And where we have been passive, we ask that you would make us vigilant. Where we kill sin and we also seek to have our hearts happy in you. May this be a a turning point for a few people in here, a turning point where today they start looking at the mercies, the grace in Jesus to them. Today would be a turning point. No matter how much they've messed up in the past, no matter how much junk they're going through today, they would see the mercies. There's forgiveness, there's grace, and may they want to offer their lives to you as a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice. And may they walk in your will In Jesus' name I pray, amen.